I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Matrix Revolutions. Program Smith has grown beyond your control. You cannot stop him, but I can. And if you fail, I won't. Do you know what happened to Neo? He is trapped in a place between this world and the machine world. Bring me the eyes of the Oracle. Then I will give you back your savior. Mr. Anderson, who are you? Look past the flesh and see your enemy. It's impossible. Not impossible. Inevitable. <laughs> In less than 12 hours, the machines will breach the dock walls. If we have to give our lives, we give him hell before we do! Can Zion be saved? Tonight future of both worlds will be in your hands or in his mr anderson welcome back we missed you it ends tonight you've never believed in the one i still don't i believe in him here they come. Neo is doing what he believes he must do. If you tell me we'll make it, I'll believe you. We'll make it. We have to. I don't know what he can do to save us, but I do know that as long as there is a single breath in his body, he will not give up, and neither can we. Everything that has a beginning has an end. Welcome to our deep dive on the third of the Matrix films. With us once again are Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Hello, thanks for having me. Brendan Agnew. How's it going? Mackenzie Eastrom. Here online. And Alexa Vargas. So glad to be back. So tonight we're going to be talking about the toughest film to love for both the general public and the critics. Seriously, this series went from a high of 88% freshness on the original 1999 film to a surprising 73% for Reloaded in retrospect, and then an all-time low of 35% for Revolutions, which still means one in three critics liked it and then a 63% for its returning Resurrection, so that means two in three critics liked it. Notably, 18 years later, in late 2021, The Matrix was now being judged and appraised by many critics who were otherwise engaged with being children when the trilogy ended in late 2003. Those numbers are not measures of merit, but they do give us an idea as to how well-received or otherwise films are, and... Uh, this one is the hardest to find the higher qualities of relative to the others and my least favorite by far. And yet, the story with some of the most significant changes in perspective and evolutions of philosophy, where there are troubling undercurrents in a straight reading of the 1999 original, this has a message of 
something quite different, which defies the black and white thinking, and it both confused and infuriated and disappointed audiences. Now, that's also because it wears you down by concerning itself far, far too long with the business of listless action, needless complications, replanning everything after a whole movie's worth of planning last time, and a lot of screaming dudes in mech suits shooting sentinels. This is the only one of the four Matrix movies that I don't sit up and take notice and like, and and this is the only one that I I physically slump into my chair while watching, Mm. because I know it's gonna be a long one. I don't, I used to fucking hate this film. And uh, you know, when people were like, there are no such thing as Matrix sequels, I'd be like, yeah, unfortunately there are, but I understand your determination to head canon out the parts of a series that don't fit with the rest. For example, for me, Terminator 1, 2 and Dark Fate is a trilogy, and Alien and Aliens exist without the need for Prometheus and Alien Covenant, or Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. But um, now it it kind of frustrates me because there's some really important stuff mm. in there. I, I do think one of the distinctions that I would make is that the while they are recapping quite a bit of the narrative stuff and re-explaining it, they're not doing that with the philosophical stuff. Mm. The philosophical stuff is reaching its conclusions and a lot of it is being delivered in shorthand and visually mm. in a way that you get all your explanations in the first two and and now you're getting to the conclusion but because it is surrounded by a lot of narrative recap and action that feels superfluous it's hard to pick it out it gets lost a bit i think act one is a triple whammy of the train man that lobby sequence the sex rave and Neo stuck in the uh, uh, underground and visits to the Oracle and the Merovingian and talking on the... What's the name of the ship that they're actually... Is it the Logos at the beginning? The, the, oh, at the beginning? Oh, the, the hammer. hammer. The Hammer. It's one of the many hovercrafts, but there's a lot of talking in sweaters there. And this takes like 42 minutes of the film. And like I was watching it and going, so little of this really matters... But the stuff with Ramakandra is absolutely load-bearing conceptual stuff that a lot of people would just have found annoying and wished it would stop and completely missed how key it was. So, I mean, like, okay, so how do you folks take these sections? Because you might love them. I really actually like the train man. Um, he's absolutely one of the characters I feel like could have supported a spinoff. I mean, he doesn't really have the any The train purpose. man spinoff. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't really have any purpose going forward uh, after movie three, but like there's so much they could have done with him before. And I just the moment where he just slams Neo back is a great. Ah, it, it's the programming layers. Neo is the Lord of the Matrix because he understands that code. But the train tunnel wasn't built by the architect. It was built by the train man. Mm. So he literally is the Neo of that little station and just completely wrecks Neo's face. And yeah, no, I I like the train man as an idea. He's barely in the movie, though. (laughs) I I was actually really surprised this time around by how fucking rude Neo is. Like, all he has to do is just turn up and say... 
uh, you're the train man. Yeah, may I get on this train? Like, just ask politely. He, the first thing he basically says is, hey, old hobo, I'm gonna punch you out of your old pants. And the hobo's like, down here, I am God. And then punches, it's, it's Bruce Spence from the Mad Max films. He was the gyrocopter pilot in the second one, and then he returns as a completely different character in the third one, which was the last Mad Max for many, many decades. Um, and he also played the Mouth of Sauron, and he was in the th- uh, Revenge of the Sith. He was an alien that had a face that was basically corduroy. So it's like, he turns up at the end to shepherd your trilogy to a close. But yeah, look, Neo's fucking rude, which means that later when he talks to Deus Ex Machina, the giant baby made of Sentinels, he's a bit more polite. Being the one, he's focused entirely on his fighting skills and barely at all on his negotiation skills. Well, I think this sequence is largely about him coming to terms with the fact that the programs are something he should also be fighting, not against necessarily, but understanding more. And he's actually not super great with the family at the start of this Mm. sequence either and I think a lot of that is just him dealing with the fact that that like immediately after what happens at the end of revolutions he has to deal with or not revolutions reloaded all these damn R words he's trying to come to terms with a lot yeah (laughs) all at once and learning essentially that it's not just the Oracle or the architect that all of these programs have existed all of this time that are just people and they're also dealing with their own stuff. And it's so much more complicated mm. than he's had to deal with because he's essentially reloaded as a transition point between a black and white ideology in the first movie mm. to uh, nuance and and kind of collaboration to a certain extent yeah. in revolutions and I really love his interactions with the family on the train platform. I really love uh, the father whose name escapes me because I'm not great with names. Ramakandra. Uh, Ramakandra. He's – there's just something so wonderful and warm about his performance and mm. the way he talks about his his family. And he loves them and it's just a really good way for the movie to shorthand explain to you why the ending – can't just be the humans destroying all of the machines and being free because that's not it's not helping anyone at the end of the day to get rid of this lovely family and their beautiful daughter who they they love enough to not get to ever see again Hmm. this Um, really is an an important like step in especially since like you said in reloaded he's just found out an extension of his powers and now he's immediately faced with okay, where are the situations where I you know, fighting my way out, no matter what kind of powers I've I've attained, is not just uh, you know uh, unwise but self-destructive. And so it, th- I think this is one of the the elements of the film where you get to see the the fact that the way it was filmed, you have all of this story momentum that's pushing you forward. But because the film was structured and written like a separate film, it has to stop and restart mm. in spite of the fact that you've got all of this this like narrative story pressure already built up. And so the fact that we're basically doing a rescue Han Solo from Jabba's palace thing. That's what it, I put. <laughs> it's like well, at the I beginning mean, of the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie, they also do Jabba's palace there with uh, Chow Yun-Fat. 
Exactly. And and what you have with with revolutions is, is you really kind of have like a return of the Jedi or return of the king. We have to get X back and then we have to split the party for their their different goals and objectives mm-hmm. with a, a unified like thing. But it like I said, the way this is set up, the the pacing of the story is at complete odds with its structure as a singular film. Mm-hmm. And so what what should be like this just really cool sort of like almost meditative episode of the of the movie where like you could conceivably see Neo get to go from being kind of like short and abrupt with the family of like Machines don't love what, and, and then with the train man and like getting to really sell the moment where he literally sits and centers himself and yeah. and tries to to like look internally as opposed to forcing something externally, but instead we have to like fast forward through that interspersed with the upside down recycling of the lobby shootout. Hmm. Are you from the Matrix? Yes. No. I mean, I was. Why did you leave? I had to. I had to leave my home too. Sati, come here, darling. Leave the poor man in peace. Yes, Papa. I am sorry, she is still very curious. I know you. Yes, in the restaurant of the Frenchman. I am Ramakandra. This is my wife, Kamala, my daughter, Sati. We are most honored to meet you. Your programs? Oh, yes. I am the power plant systems manager for recycling operations. My wife is an interactive software programmer. She is highly creative. What are you doing here? You do not belong here. Kamala, goodness, I apologize. My wife can be very direct. It's okay. I don't have an answer. I don't even know where here is. This place is nowhere. It is between your world and our world. Who's the train man? He works for the Frenchman. Why, I know you were going to say that. The Frenchman does not forget, and he does not forgive. You know him? I know only what I need to know. I know that if you want to take something from our world into your world that does not belong there, you must go to the Frenchman. Is that what you're doing here? Rama, please. I do not want to be cruel, Kamala. He may never see another face for the rest of his life. I'm sorry. You don't have to answer that question. No, I I don't mind. The answer is simple. I love my daughter very much. I find her to be the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But where we are from, that is not enough. Every program that is created must have a purpose. If it does not, it is deleted. I went to the Frenchman to save my daughter. You do not understand. I just have never heard a program speak of love. It is a human emotion. No, it is a word. What matters is the connection the word implies. I see that you are in love. Can you tell me what you would give to hold on to that connection? Anything. And perhaps the reason you are here is not so different than the reason I am here. Yeah, the um, the bit with the uh, Merovingian is very... It feels like a movie made 
10 years after the matrix mm-hmm. oh no it feels like the it feels like ghostbusters afterlife is what it feels like it's like hey we did the cool thing again but um i mean in the end it's worth it for trinity just deciding that the plot of this scene has gone on too long. I don't have time for this shit. <laughs> so, that's a t-shirt I, with Trinity on it. I think that's cutting that the the whole vampire nightclub scene a little a little short. There's a lot of small moments that I think even in and around that lobby scene where they go down and there's the coat check girl and she's an innocent. So they throw her in the elevator so she's protected because they want to fight these exiles they don't want to kill a random person mm-hmm. it's like it's just a small little moment the people who go into the club ahead of them are, are a lesbian couple which you know oh, nice. feels relevant this, and this purposeful. scene has um, so much explicit gay imagery compared to the rest of it it's oh just it's Talk just about a Venice letter- club there Talk are people about twist, mamas. twisting each other's nipples left, right, and center. Which it's, it's makes Morpheus, Trinity, and Seraph going through the club back to back with their guns out going, watch out for that guy, looks weird. Look out, there's a gimp over there. Oh my God, how many piercings? Fucking hell. They seem so old. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, they, they don't... I think the best part is the fact that none of the people who are there at that dance club seem to really be that worried about these yeah. three crazy people with guns coming in and i i enjoyed the lobby sequence because it was a chance for somebody other than neo to mm. beat the crap out of some exiles like mm. and it it shows the i mean because like we had the whole it, it's a parallel to both the lobby scene and also the scene in the chateau yeah. in reloaded where i i just love the ending where trinity just looks at him sideways and just like all right i'll just boot you through the wall we get to see all of all of trinity's greatest moves because she is the unstoppable force at this point because they took her girlfriend next time um, you folks uh, watch this scene uh keep your eye on morpheus he is in standing up the movie he does not take cover he does not move he just sort of stands there with two machine guns going and then all these other guys are running around the place flying through the air going upside down going oh my god i got shot i wonder why <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate this sequence. It's so. It just seemed to have been manufactured to go, hey, you kids. Like exactly like you said. Remember this? We did it again. And it's less interesting now. I already it's have problems with the, the lobby sequence in the first one, and it's brilliant. I just want to briefly say that I think this scene is, is a little bit um, of a synecdoche for a lot of the issues in the Matrix uh, Revolutions, which is. Where they choose to put their focus mm-hmm. is weird, and it's amplified. The weirdness of it is amplified a lot by the fact that every other movie has kind of been. Well, the first movie is intentionally just a hero's journey about Neo. Mm-hmm. The second movie is really struggling with being primarily about Neo, and really probably would have benefited from letting itself be a little bit more of an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. And in this one, they've kind of. They're dealing with that even worse in that really this isn't what the movie's as much interested in, except for the philosophy part of it, as mm. it is getting to the character interaction stuff and all of the stuff going on in Zion. But because they didn't have the opportunity, um, because they didn't have the opportunity earlier in the earlier movies to build up these characters, it feels like they have to focus more on Trinity and Morpheus and Neo and it it just gets kind of weird and muddled in my opinion it just it's another moment where i'm just like oh they really wanted this to be more than it was they wanted 
everything to have equal weight and they just don't have the opportunity to do that. Like, it almost feels like you want a whole side series of characters who are, like, affected by the exiles and the Merovingians' whole deal and, like, the train man. But, like, you don't have that, so you just kind of get bits and pieces of it everywhere else. Mm. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to make a joke at you earlier, Alex, saying, well, you see, the important part about this is that it rhymes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It rhymes. There's another Death Star in this one. I don't think we're ever going to do another Death Star, though. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think that the, um, the taking this this vampire nightclub on and going up and talking to Merovingian and, and resetting all of this up, and he's basically like, ah, oh, yes, you're here, and I'm going to give you this side quest. And it's it's bring it's me the eyes of the oracle. It's definitely determinism because I I find it uh, really reflective of the you see three captains, I see providence. I come here by chance. I do not believe in chance. When I see three objectives, three captains, three ships. I do not see coincidence. I see providence. I see purpose. (laughs) I have told you before there is no escaping the nature of the universe. It is that nature that has again brought you to me. Where some see coincidence, I see consequence. Where others see chance, I see And it's, it's 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 making a deal with the cartoon devil with horns on his head and a little old pitchfork. It's rather on the nose. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like what well, but, the but, hell? But the Merovingian's determinism is very, very similar to Morpheus's fate, uh, belief in fate. Mm. And, and there's, I believe, a parallel being drawn there because at this point, Morpheus has been shaken in that fate, in, yeah. in, in that faith by by quite a bit and if anything the 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 primary theme of all of these movies is talking about fate and choice and determinism and free will and coming down in a weird third position where you have already made the choice it's a matter of fig- of, of understanding why you made that choice which is different from determinism and different from free will but it is and absolutely s- laid down by the oracle in the original matrix so it's, yeah, it's, it's staying on brand there okay now i'm supposed to say hmm that's interesting but then you say but what? But you already know what I'm going to tell you. I'm not the one. Sorry, kid. You got the gift, but it looks like you're waiting for something. What? Your next life, maybe. Who knows? And then in film two. Do you already know if I'm going to take it? Wouldn't be much of an oracle if I didn't. But if you already know, how can I make a choice? Because you didn't come here to make the choice. You've already made it. You're here to try to understand why you made it. I thought you'd have figured that out by now. And more importantly... We can never see past the choices we don't understand. Are you saying I have to choose whether Trinity lives or dies? No. We've already made the choice. Now you have to understand it. And then on the other hand... Maybe you knew I was going to do that. Maybe you didn't. If you did, that means you baked those cookies and set that plate right there deliberately, purposefully. Which means that you're sitting there also deliberately, purposefully. (laughs) 
every single one of these movies, including the fourth one, like that is a cornerstone of a lot of the philosophical theming. And in in this scene, we see really what happens with this determinism. No, oh, yes, I have something you need. You have to go get something I want. And then Trinity says, well, how about this? I won't kill you and you give me back my girlfriend. And it's and, and it feels like because the Merovingian feels so much to me like like a, 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 a debate me bro uh, online. Mm, yeah. And this kind <laughs> He's of got like philosophy. a martini glass on, on that um, placaboard table. Changed yeah, my mind. Crazy. He's got a skull in the background. Well, He's and, and absolutely the, f- the kind of online asshole who's realized the mechanism of cap- capitalism is ruining the world, but also is just like, yeah, but there's no other economic system but capitalism. Is the Merovingian <laughs> buying NFTs or selling NFTs? Both. Oh, he's absolutely <laughs> minting NFTs. He owns Ethereum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but that I think that's the important point because a, a cornerstone of the of the Merovingians' ideology is uh, understanding how the world works, and it is saying that this is how the world works, and that anything that falls outside of that, I cannot fundamentally understand. So when Trinity uh, is like. Okay, well then, we're all going to hell tonight, baby. Um, the Merovingian cannot understand that choice. And in that, like, he doesn't even believe that she's going to make that choice until uh, Persephone's like, oh, no, she she will absolutely kill you. And I'm she's crazy, man. here for it. Um, <laughs> Trinity, please kiss me after you shoot him. Yeah. There's yeah, right? a, there's a, Can I pause and segue slightly to talk about the, a bit in the Enter the Matrix game? Uh, this is the one with uh, Niobe and Ghost. The there is a cutscene. Effectively, the cutscenes are scenes that appear to be deleted scenes from the the, the two Matrix sequels uh, prior to obviously the fourth one. Um, and you get to play as either Niobe or Ghost. And effectively, the same scene plays out when they come into the room and Persephone's there and they want something from her, information or something, and she says. And for that, I'm going to need a kiss. I've been watching you. You're looking for your friend. But you will never find them. Then you're going to help me. I can have this room full of my husband's men in a heartbeat if I wanted to. But that wouldn't serve either of us, would it? What do you want? A long time ago, I did not even know what that question meant. Now it is all I ever think about. I see that you care for your friend a great deal. If they were to die, you would feel such terrible pain. To be honest, I do enjoy the taste of tears, but there is something I enjoy so much more. You have it, buried deep inside you, hidden, perhaps from yourself. But I see it, there. Creating such heat. Back off. You're in love. Are you not? If you want me to help you, all you must do is kiss me as though you were kissing them. What? If you kiss me as if you were kissing your true love, I'll tell you where your friend is. I could beat it out of you. I like the sound of that too, but a kiss will do.
Are you going to let your friend die over a silly kiss? You have to make me believe. Oh. Oh, my. Unrequited love. Such longing for something. And it's like, okay, I've never seen real actors acting out fanfic. This will be interesting. And she kisses Niobe, and predictably, Niobe's, uh, she's like, mm, that was bollocks. And then Niobe's like, no, 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 come back, let's do this properly. And so they kiss, and then it would appear, she, she says, uh, what is the name of the man that you love? Jason. She's like, nah, it's someone else, isn't it? And it's like, okay, so Ni- uh, Niobe's got the hots for someone else. And this is why um, I asked if Ghost had the hots for Trinity because uh, you, you said that they got out at the same time. Uh, yeah, that's that's in his bio on the... Yeah, she's a love vampire, but she doesn't take it from you. She experiences it with you. She effectively puts herself in a room wherein you are metaphorically having sex with the person that you love, and she watches it and feeds off it, and it's intrusive to everyone that she does that to and everyone feels to some degree violated but that's what she feeds upon she's i i could frankly go for a whole netflix tv show just about persephone like running (laughs) the matrix after the merovingians turned into a hobo he's train man too so i i um i i I talked about this in the in the reloaded episode that i don't necessarily see her as feeding off of but she understands people mm. through the way kissing. that sarah like kissing fights is her them in, to in the way that sarah fights people yeah. to understand them yeah the other thing that i think just really makes this scene in in spite of the weirdness of shoehorning another lobby show this gets to be the mirror of neo choosing to to refuse the the binary that the architect offers him mm. with just the maybe i can figure something out uh, and and deciding to you know to defy his fate, you know this this is Trinity doing the exact same thing, except she has a much better idea of of how to do that. Yeah. Like Neo is basically like, well, uh, maybe if I fly real fast enough, and Trinity's like, no, I already know exactly how to flip this table over. Give me what I want right now. Now that we've talked about the uh, the actual the important stuff of this, I feel like restructuring the beginning to make it not we need to get Neo back, he's lost, but Neo and Trinity are stuck inside the Matrix. Maybe even with Morpheus there as well, but Morpheus who now has had the rug pulled out from under him. If Neo has his powers taken away as a result of the, like, rather than the other way around where he's stuck in a place that's not quite the Matrix, if they can't get to a hard line and they have to make their way through the Matrix, 
meeting various programs along the way and empathising with them, that would make for a fascinating first act that then leads on to the third act as Neo starts to realise, oh my god, these these programs absolutely have lives too and experience love and like uh, make it much more domestic. Like all the fucking nightclub rave shit, shooting gallery, fucking dealing with the Merovingian, we've done it. It's been done. The hot, the getting to know programs in the Matrix is the interesting thing, and they do it for like two and a half minutes tops in 45 fucking minutes. And a lot of the rest of it is taken up with talking to the Oracle, who due to real life circumstances had to be uh, recast uh, when Gloria Foster died and uh, amid filming and Mary Alice took over. And I compared this to, um, like, it is a really unenviable role. No one wants to follow that performance. I, I compared it to, imagine if Michael Jai White had to take over as T'Challa from Chadwick Boseman. Like, no one's going to go, oh, fantastic. Thank God you're here, Michael Jai Who? White. Okay. I, I want to take a moment here to to at least say that Mary Alice does a very good job here. And had there been an alternate universe where she had been cast originally... Mm. I don't think that we would have had a lesser Matrix trilogy for her playing the Oracle. I she do. does it extremely well. I it's think she just... does fine, but I think Gloria Foster does God mode. Yeah, I think it's just a lot of it, though, is that it is a sudden, abrupt, and unfortunate change. I disagree. That... I think her delivery is way weaker. But she That's has far fair. less meat to get her teeth into when it comes to, like, the sprightly sense that uh, Gloria Foster... Gloria Foster got all the best stuff to do and say. And then, unfortunately, Mary Alice is, is basically sitting in a wake. It's this dark, miserable place. And she's like, here's cookies. Do you remember when I made cookies before? Here's candy. This is the connective tissue where we're trying to really, really convince you that I'm the same person. They spend so much time riffing on the existing Oracle and not really giving her anything to, to say apart from... Like, her delivery is so different. He doesn't understand them. He can't. To him, they are variables in an equation. One at a time, each variable must be solved and counted. That's his purpose, to balance the equation. You're cuter than I thought. I can see why she likes you. Who? Not too bright, though. And she, it's a completely different performance. And it's fine that, like, it's, it's just... They would, they would almost be better off just having Sati say, How's it going, Neo? And it, and it could be like a little kid is the Oracle. I, I, I remember thinking that when I was fucking 23 years old, and I actually still stand by that. Mary Alice is almost too close, but Uncanny Valley just a little bit to one side of Gloria Foster. But sorry, I do agree continue, with that, Mackenzie. You, your point is absolutely valid. My point is that they have to, because of the nature of the sudden switch, dedicate all of this time to mm. explaining it and emotionally like dealing with that impact. And then also just... I, I don't know for sure if this is the case, but I'm going to assume the script was written out in a way that it was always going to be a very dark kind of sad thing yeah. that was going through for the Oracle anyways. And so she doesn't get the opportunity to do anything yeah. that would endear you to her. And yeah, I do think that they might have benefited from just going full Doctor Who and casting a completely different like person altogether, someone mm. who didn't look 
anything like it. Like still keeping someone of color though. I ended up like Sati in Matrix Four. That's not really a spoiler. She's in it. I love yeah. her, and I wanted her to do so much more than she did. Something like that, or yeah, like cast literally, yeah, just somebody that was distinct enough that the shock mm. of seeing them as a different person read enough on its own yeah. that you don't have to spend so much time on it by casting somebody who who probably would have shown up for that first casting call and been in the exact same like range mm. you've you've made it a little more stilted they were trying to make uh, it smooth a smoother transition but uh, yeah. your mind reels at the slight differences there's a and line... i do oh sharon you haven't spoken in ages go for it <laughs> there's a line in that uh, in those scenes from enter the matrix where Mary Alice explains to... Not even the Oracle anymore. Sorry. Okay. The Oracle explains to Niobe that the reason she looks different is because uh, Ramakandra and Kamala had to sell her... Code. The code that makes her face to the Merovingian in order to get Sati out. Yeah. And the way she frames it suggests that she was keen enough to help protect Sati, that mm. she she gave them that willingly so that they could trade it for, for Sati's passage. Sati's name and position is holy. Yeah. In, uh, she is absolutely key Indeed. to the renewal of the Matrix in a brand new way. But that then ties weirdly with the with the Merovingian's comments that he wants her eyes and it and in retrospect makes it feel like he's trying to take her a piece at a time. Mm. I want the, really I want the Oracle's feet. You can have my feet. I've got bunions anyway. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think the eyes thing is is honestly just so that they can set up everything that happens, and some of it's quite subtle with Smith taking her eyes. When you actually comprehend the nature of her sight, which is this is round six, I know the basic shape of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I don't think the Merovingian would have been able to do anything with that. Yeah. Probably not, because the other thing is as well what the the what the oracle is able to do. I want the eyes while he's chomping on olives as well. It's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> with are you going to eat them? Yeah. Um, what the oracle is able to do is in direct contrast to what the architect is able to do. So she's already been described as an intuitive program, and everything that she does appears to be reflecting back to the people she helps something that is already within them, that they already know about. She doesn't seem to be able to tell them anything that they don't already know. Mm. She is allowing them to see the things that up till this point they haven't like let themselves see. Like a great therapist, yeah. Exactly. Whereas what the architect does is gives information that may or may not be relevant, you don't know because you don't understand it because mm. it doesn't, it, it comes from an external source, it's couched in terms of, judgment and arrogance and assumption that, that you won't understand the things that he's trying to explain. It's all to do with everything being very precise and very external and she is very internal and mm. so they, they kind of counter each other that way. Side note, if it had been a kind of an odyssey through the Matrix like uh, hiding in different people's houses kind of like a raid but on the move with agents chasing them at every point and if it could be just Smith chasing them at every point it could become clearer and clearer that Smith is doubling and trebling and quadrupling and just fucking everyone in the world is becoming Smith so that you start to worry about all of these people that that Neo and Trinity and Morpheus are meeting and it's like they're programs but they're people and Smith's taking them over and that gives a real weight to Smith taking 
everything and everyone. And, you know, it also doubles back to the anxiety and frust- and, and fear and, and frantic, you know, get up, Trinity, get up at the beginning of the first film that you recapture that sense of we are not gods we are not even demigods we are really up against it if we see an agent run we have to run our asses off but in that in that frantic run they actually stop to talk to the other people in the matrix they still haven't fucking done that in four films four films they didn't do it in resurrections either it was like ah you people all don't matter you're npcs this is very much a series of movies made by some very passionate people who love other very passionate friends and everyone else is just a sort of a grey shape. It's very much we love people in the abstract but we love individuals with a specificity that allows us to bear the dreadful behaviour of humanity. One entirely sympathises. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the you can you can only kind of like really understand the the peopleness of a a group of a certain size. Yeah. Um. And and the problem with that is like this this movie is really it really is trying to to extend the the empathy for that uh, intellectually mm. in, in a way that it's really hard to back up narratively. Mm. And and what's what's kind of a bummer is that this this particular bit, especially this we're we're near kind of like the midpoint where we're meeting the oracle and her her remarks about not being able to see past a choice you understand and how that that really comes into this movie i like that as a line just, by the way and it was well delivered it, it's also where we get to like the intersecting philosophies of multiple different characters because the merovingians being able to see past a choice you understand is is how you get to use causality as a like well if i understand the situation then i can understand where it's going and it's also before that how you reckon with the the struggle between choice and predestination so that's that's very much a a key thematic crossroads as well as something that i think that they use very well as as a bow at the end of the film um but it because we get it as sort of an info dump from the oracle it feels a little bit not not necessarily like a cheat, but it feels like something that could have been more satisfactorily spread out over something like you're talking about, where we're we're interacting with both the programs and the people of the Matrix who have the same threat posed against them as Smith continues to multiply, and then kind of ending that here, where where Sati and the Oracle both meet their fates. I, that that feels like a, a again more of a culmination rather than a we're speeding through so many almost like greatest hits story mm. beats in this movie. Mm. I think and, you uh, were, Oh, go. Well, I think if you were going to try to switch up the opening to be more of a, of a traveling through the matrix, it would actually be probably best to keep it in that kind of liminal space and explore the concept of exiles a little bit further. And the, Maybe having them meet in the in-between spaces of the Matrix and the machine world to establish that, you know, there is an in-between space there that doesn't have to just be like a blank void of train. It can be something to go towards and is a goal and that would help establish, you know, the ending even better. But, you know, 
it's clear they were not able to really pull that together for whatever reason. Hmm. There's also a preoccupation with the uh, they they spend a long time setting up these mech things and the idea of the war in Zion and everyone like we are much like Neo conceptually invested in the war in Zion but then in execution when it turns out to be a lot of screaming and going and shooting robots that are in the air with bullets and then the next scene you're like trying to fire a rocket launcher at a big thing with a drill and then you go back to the guys going and shooting geometric patterns of sentinels and it's like oh this is going on a bit. And everyone always mentions how boring these sections are. I counted. It's 19 whole straight minutes, but it feels like an hour of just screaming and and bullets. And the problem is, thematically speaking, we're not supposed to enjoy it. We're supposed to be worried about everyone involved. But it's shot in a kind of, yeah, machine guns, guns, kaboom, y'all, Joel Silver. Like, this is the big effects you came to see. You know how the Planet of the Apes movies make you not want action to happen? That's what this should have been. But instead, they really fucking focus on the action for ages. And it's really hard to care. Especially once you know who lives and who dies. You're just like, oh. Oh, okay. And also, everyone dies in such a horrible way in The Matrix. Like, you know, they don't just, like, get blown up. They get metal poles thrust through them at speed and blood bursts out and they die instantly and it's just a horrible shock. And and it's unusual because you're used to this being PG-13, so your brain goes, whoa, where did that come from? Which is kind of cool. Like that's it, It's a big franchise that's R-rated. There aren't many. These were two of the highest grossing R-rated movies of all time. But the actual process of watching this battle, it's a battle that shouldn't happen. It's a battle that we've already been told by a previous movie is going to result in the deaths of all the people. And when you talk to Locke, he's like, I would load every man, woman and child into the firing line and throw them at the Sentinels because that's all we can do. We don't even have hope anymore. It's just a process. He's literally doing everything that the architect wants him to do. And we already know this is a bad thing and we're forced to sit with it. Okay, there's no accounting for some people going, I like the robot mech suits. Who doesn't like robot mech suits? No, Go but for okay, it. Because so there are going to be people think... who are like, hey, I like the robot mech suits too. So you, they need the voice too. Go I, for it. I do think that um, the, the squiddy fight in the dock is, um, for the time period, um, absolutely gorgeously animated. Like, it's not... It, the it squiddies themselves are definitely like they they have that fluidity to them. So yeah, I'll I'll give you that that swarming yeah, um, kind of undulating movement that does make them even scarier. 
but the actual like rhythms of the fight, yes, it 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 does kind of feel like its own little like pocket dimension where it's okay to watch a cool war movie happen. Mm. But as a standalone cool war movie, it's really well paced. You've got the robots who have their defensive positions. You've got the chase in the tunnel. You've got the rocket launcher people, which is really nice boots on the ground type stuff. And the the loaders, the ammo loaders, which is like such a small logistical chain thing to actually include in your movie. I know it's so kid has something to do, but it's very like considerate of how they're actually going to, you know, keep this fight going. Oh, the kid's the last hope. He actually wins the whole fight, which again, remember when I said that people were saying Jar Jar Binks, if you recall, Jar Jar Binks was like the hero of the war against the droids. Oh, come on. Kid is obviously Wesley Crusher. (laughs) Shut up, Wesley. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, especially in that he's doing it on purpose as opposed to accidentally. (laughs) Annie, I I believe. I think that that's maybe selling this scene a little short. The, the... There's a thematic through line that's it, going on here. Making with it a little short and... would have been a good idea. Sorry. Well, <laughs> fair. I, the, the thing that I was impressed by, because I literally had not watched this movie since it came out. Mm. Uh, so I remembered not really understanding it, not really following a lot of what was going on and for the whole movie in general from back at the time. But now that going through the movies with a fine tooth comb for the show and, and resurrections and all the, and all the ancillary media and such, I found the fight to be one, a lot more parsable than I remember. Like I could, I knew where everyone was. It has a wonderful sense of place for something this early in the CGI experience. Yeah. And in kid and Z are both making the same choice that Neo does at the end with Smith. They're choosing to fight when they otherwise probably shouldn't be, and it is the kid and Z that save the day because Z ends up being in exactly the right place to save the kid from the sentinel that is going to tear him in half, and the kid shoots out the lock to let the hammer in. And it's the fact that it's these these ancillary characters that are... It, for all intents and purposes, nobody's compared to somebody like Neo or Morpheus, mm. but they are making... Yeah, no, I, I like the fact that it's like the smallest person can make a difference. That was felt. Same choice that Neo does at the end, mm. and that is resonant with his conversation with Smith uh, in the rain. Hmm. The parallels between the Mech War and Neo versus Smith fall down for me when you consider that if the humans of Zion reached the same ultimate conclusion as Neo in that fight, then serenely surrendering their bodies to genocide would merely have perpetuated the cycle. And Councillor Hammond is not around to point out the irony of the desperate struggle to destroy digital machines with their constructed, self-defensive analog machines. Their war may keep them alive, but it is merely a flashback to the previous, simplified us-versus-them cycle which humans always lose. This is exemplified by how helpless they are as soon as this battle is over and the war continues, just sitting on their thumbs waiting for Neo to save the day before more squiddies arrive to continue the slaughter. Belief in the self is extremely important. Inspiration from messianic figures to protect those you love is also important. But the business of the Matrix revolutions goes far deeper and the battle 
is far, far too long and obnoxiously noisy and busy to in any way connect with the conclusions of this film, of this story, of this trilogy of stories, of this quadrilogy of stories, of this transmedia saga. What we're really seeing here is one human with that believe it or not you piece of shit you're still gonna burn lightning gun shooting one squiddy and then multiply that by a thousand. I think for me what would really help make this work better because I, I'm on the side that I think it's actually very well made as like a as like a section of a war movie everything's very followable and I'm like, gonna get messages I, about this aren't I like you know, the last probably. time I did this I was when I said you know the uh the the Tarzan soundtrack by Phil Collins not all that great the amount of fucking <laughs> Phil Collins fans came out of the woodwork going, how dare you, sir? I'm going to get... Uh, you know what? The Matrix mech fight was the making of cinema for me. I don't think it's something, like, spectacular to write home about, and I definitely think it feels weird and doesn't quite fit in to the movie, especially as the end of the franchise. But I think if you try to, like, isolate it out, a lot of it functions very well. And I really like... So the, uh, you, know, you mean on its own it works better, or the like, film without it works better? It's it's complicated. I, I, if it I'm, helps folks uh, at home, I abbreviated this 19-minute sequence into a 58-second sequence using some very quiet piano music, juxtaposing the guys in the mech suits fighting, the um, ones with the rocket launchers, and the kid, all doing their little things to get the hammer in the door all the all the important key movements happened over that 58 seconds but it was amusing on the futility tragedy and loss of life of war as opposed to what to me is not actually a million miles off of michael bay's transformers just this curling twisting shooting metal that just becomes a fucking noise mess This is just a little thing about numbers, and there was no way that these people could simultaneously wake up everyone in their pods. And even if they did, if Neo could wake them all up at once, I don't even think that Morpheus had a think about what this really entailed. Even if Neo could wake them up at once, the shock would kill hundreds of millions. The cold world of metal and stone and no clean drinking water and no food and the horrifying prospect of having to use limbs and eyes to clamber out of your own pod, teetering on the edge of a skyscraper and to find a safe place to sort of climb down and live, even temporarily, would finish off billions more. 
But even if every single one of them could wake up calmly and be funneled to Zion by a complicit system of machines who are actually helping out with the Awoken, their rehabilitation to the real world would be catastrophically tall of an order because you'd be reliant on the ones who are already there in the real world to help them. There are only a quarter of a million people in Zion at this point. Every man, woman, child and intersex individual would have to take on and ease back to reality. Not one blue pill muncher from the Matrix, not ten, not a hundred, but 26,000 human beings each and put them through a quicker version of what it took the entire crew of the Nebuchadnezzar to do with Neo over many days. In actuality, Neo fighting the Matrix directly for long enough and actually smashing the system like a lot of people wanted him to, myself included, I was like, what are they actually going to do with all of these people? But think about it for a bit. It would have led to exactly as the architect warned, the deaths of 6.5 billion living human beings. The fate of the human race is now tied inexorably to the machines. Okay, so Smith is now a pandemic, but where is he mentally? <laughs> Uh, he's, he's pretty good, you know, he's, he's, making he's laughing, he's, he's making his quotas. <laughs> he's, his productivity is through the roof. I think Smith really comes into his own as a fascist asshole in this movie. Oh, yeah. I think he's really reached peak nihilistic. I mean, the thing that really struck me with this one was he is an extremely effective metaphor or symbol of the way that agents of a system that are uh, given the opportunity and sole job of doing violence against people will sometimes when lost when the system loses control of the over them, just like subsume that entire system with the violence that they've have based their entire existence on. Uh, and I mean, he's certainly doing very good at that. He is accomplishing his goals. Yeah, this is this is full on toddler on a wrecking ball tantrum spree, Agent Smith. He's mm. he's just barely figured out that he can make choices and enforce change in his world, and his only concept of of like other people existing is intellectual at best because he has he has like n very little understanding of humanity and no empathy so all he can do with with his his choices are make everyone like him take stuff from other people and then just knock down all the block towers in the world when really what he needs to do is just calm down and hate fuck neo already and get it <laughs> over with with consent <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, we say that he's, uh, I, I was joking about him doing well, of course, but, um. He's cracking, man. Uh, he's just falling the, apart. The, the, the point real... when he throws the cookies against the wall and goes, you put those cookies there, which means you knew I was going to throw the plate at the wall, didn't you? He's like, he doesn't know the answer to this. When he calls her mom, he's a kid who's pushed against the structure and found that it breaks and now, with no structure, doesn't know what the fuck to do with himself. But there's also um, real-world Smith. Bane Smith is, uh, one, fantastic performance. I think we've discussed this. Mm -hmm. uh, but also just um, not okay. He is absolutely not okay being in the human world. 
let's go back to our metaphors of gay people for a while. He is uh, forcefully closeting himself, but he's the one who has to infiltrate all the gay clubs to stab uh, Neo. And he's, um, I'm, I'm making light of it because he's also self-harming, mm. uh, which uh, it, it's just says a lot about Smith's headspace at all, that that's all it takes for him. He is definitely becoming more and more human, and as a result, because he hates humans, he's becoming self-loathing. He can't pass that, that disparity. And the more people he assimilates, the more human he gets. Uh, we, we also get to see him sort of like demonstrate the the remarks of how not being able to see past a choice that you don't understand, mm. because all that he can understand is 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 that drive. And the the fact that that we get to see him change physically after he assimilates the Oracle, but his goals not change is really emblematic of like how stuck he is, even as he's trying to bust free of his of his constraints and shackles. I love the way he uh, calls Neo, Neo at the end, uh, because the Oracle is speaking out of him. It's the only time mm-hmm. he ever calls Neo by not his dead name. Uh, there's one other time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, at the beginning of, of Reloaded, he says, uh, please give this to Neo. It's to Neo. Ah, Neo. But, okay. He's not saying it directly to Neo. He's saying, please give this to Thomas Anderson. Oh, you may know him as Neo. <laughs> But say, say say it's for Thomas Anderson. Say that. <laughs> Just, I want a dead name in one more time. Okay. We do that. Now we're going to get to the bit which I think is going to be, I hope is going to be the centerpiece of this that's going to make people go, ah, color theory. Now, um, there's a couple of these which are quite obvious, and a couple which actually, like, if you start looking deeply, that's where it's going to go, ah. So, in this order, what do blue, green, gold, and red represent in this series? And hold on each colour before we proceed, rather than all of us saying what we think. So, blue first. What is blue Uh in the Matrix quadrilogy? Uh, well, it's kind of actually an interesting question to have a good answer for, because in the filmmaking language, blue is uh, reality. It's the non-matrix world. It's their visual shorthand for where you are. But in um, inside the matrix, blue is not the color of reality. Blue is the color of turning away from truth and understanding. I could make the point that, uh, especially after Resurrections, the reality is just as much a part of the Matrix control system, and it's a dichotomy between two things that are essentially the same. So the blue of reality is still representative of that turning away from truth because you're locked into this quote-unquote other Matrix of the war. I was thinking very hard about blue pills while looking at Bugs, who inside the Matrix is festooned in blue. As is uh, that version of Smith, there's lots of blue in, in, in what he wears. And I'm like, how is Bugs wearing blue? And why does Bugs have blue hair? And I think the what I've settled on regarding what blue entails now kind of does work for, uh, for, for why Bugs is, uh, signifies themselves with blue. 
if I recall correctly, when um, when they were doing the the commentaries on the philosophical commentaries on the, the Matrix sequels, they ended up collating the uh, the blue color with like the the physical world, mm-hmm. but also just like your your physical sense of self. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like the real world, but it can also be like you know your your physical self and where you choose to like like how you choose to present yourself in your separate realities. Bearing in mind, these are all just interpretations. I don't have it written down on a piece of paper with the correct answer that I'm like, yes, if you can guess this, you get 50 points. It's just what I we've settled on. And when I say settled on, it's not glued to the floor. I love the idea of interpretation moving forwards and evolving. Uh, and Damn it, I wanted those points. Ah, <laughs> the points. Punks love points. I think there's also an element of, of blue tied to decision. I mean, obviously, because choice is one of the main themes of the story, but I think making and having firm choice or drive almost like determination on a certain level, even if that's determination to be in the Matrix or determination to not be in the Matrix, those are kind of a false dichotomy. It's more that pulls back into that essence of choice. Mm. Uh, what Your Bren- specialty, so go well, for it. Yeah. What, what Brendan was saying about the how they observed it in the philosophical commentary, the blue was the real world because that was the, the thing that only the humans have, the body. The, the body, body specifically, the, 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 the flesh... And I suppose that would also count for the metal of the machines. To an extent, yes. And I, the I, squiddies I, all have a blue sheen to they them. They do, yeah. When you see their physical selves, mm. how they appear in in the the world of physicality. But it did occur to me that because this doesn't my a lot of my interpretation of color theory tends to tie back to like elemental color theory. So blue in that context would normally be water. Mm. And water is representative of more of an emotional state than a physical state. If, you, if you're talking about the body, you would usually be talking about Earth. But in the context of what distinguishes the humans from the machines in this, it is emotions. It is the ability... I mean, obviously, we, we do start to get into the idea that the machines can have emotions too. But that existing in a physical state, the human body being a very high percentage of water... And that that sense of the the emotions that flow through you more, with more of a liquid quality, I think that does still allow then for the blue to represent the physical state. But it's it's what that physical state enables you to feel, and that's more of an emotional context than a physical one. If polygons is emotion, and Omicron has three hundred and fifty emotions, how many emotions is people? It's kind of appropriate that David Cage would create a game called Omicron. A virus. The reason that I reconcile Bugs as being blue within the Matrix uh, seems to be that Bugs is actually more comfortable within the Matrix. When Bugs is outside, Bugs has to deal with the tasty wheat, Bugs has to get marching orders from Niobe, which she, she doesn't particularly like. But in the Matrix, she's fascinated with all of the Neo legends and, and the like. what can be done there. So it's almost like Bugs has... Even though she was not at all fulfilled while in the Matrix, now that she's found the right way for her to approach her existence, she relishes who she is and the body she has. 
So that was my conclusion as to why she's covered in the colour that's supposed to be the bad colour. Taking the red pill does not mean you have to swathe yourself in red. So what would that make green? I mean, it's, it's the Matrix. It, it, actually, I do think green is what a... Is uh, the Matrix? <laughs> green is an awkward color to place because um, it, within so the story... It, it's just the stuff is green, yeah. Well, the, it's used to represent the, the lie, the fiction of the machines, and it's just sort of... It, it's, it's the color of nature. And it's been swathed all over this uh, completely unnatural area. And that is, I don't know, like, are trees bad? Is that what I'm supposed to be getting out of the Matrix being so green? I don't think it is. Bad trees. <laughs> well, there are the, no trees green... in Zion. That's true. The uh, 60 the, years to grow a strawberry. Sense. Sorry, Karen. Oh. Uh, the, the sense that I got from the, the green color is that it, that's like, that's like basically the the mind, the collective consciousness, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be human, um, because it is a it is a machine run realm. But it's it's basically like intellectualism and and your mind and and the the way that the the matrix starts to go dark as the virus spreads mm. represents like the the dimming of the collective like intellectual power in the face of like rising uh, forceful fascism that that threatens the like both. Uh, both kinds of intelligence in this. Yeah, that's the depressing aura around the Oracle at that point, where she's sitting sadly in her kitchen. Used to be a lovely sunny Saturday afternoon, and now it's this horrible, like most weekends in the UK. Um, it's, it's, uh, I've, again, the Cornell West equated the body with blue and the mind with green, which means that basically anything to do with uh, mental processes, be they mechanical or human, constitutes itself through green. So every time you're in the matrix, that is entirely in your mind. Uh, and so the matrix itself isn't necessarily the control, it is the manifestation of collective mental constructs. And the architect, even though he wears white and has white hair and white beard and white skin, because he is sitting in a room where he's surrounded by screens with green mm. on them, that reflects back and gives him this kind of green sheen. And he is the ultimate expression of an entirely intellectualized outlook and, and a, a world in which abstract concepts and thoughts are all that matters. He's a lean, mean machine with a distinctly green sheen. So when Neo convenes in his room full of screens, cursing him out like an obstinate teen, he shoots back with verbiage that's labyrinthine. He's so keen on demeaning the messiah obscene, he's foreseen that this one will not intervene with Zion's impending great squiddy spring clean and will throw those awake down the matrix latrine. The old dirty bastard does nothing but preen, but Neo's ultimate choice was a thing quite unseen, a contradiction the architect couldn't quite glean. He'll defy the whole system to rescue his queen. Okay, so the, the, the basic dichotomy of the green and the uh, blue, the body and the mind, gold and yellow start to enter into this third film. 
and what do they represent, potentially? It's quite noticeable that the the most dominant use of yellow and gold in the film is Neo's vision of the machine world at the end, what he can see when he loses his eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 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 an interesting thing to try to completely do a like theoretical level on because that's a pretty it, it follows a very weird line there, but it seems to me to be something of almost it's almost holy in parts of it because he's definitely pulling a lot of his messiah energy there with a lot of the yellow which is interesting because in the previous movies yellow was the like lining for the agent's coats yes very much and for thomas's coat as well for thomas's coat which is a very like this a might not have been type. color-coded from the beginning but it uh it seems yeah. to be steered more in this third film I think it's shifted. It's shifted from that meaning to something else, yeah. but I'm not sure I've completely wrapped my head I around I think it. red might as well, but um, uh, you, no, you're pretty yeah, much on like... the money. It's spirit, mind, body, spirit. But what the whole third film is about is that machines have a soul. This is something that is established early on. The fact that they can feel love equates to something that actually runs as a parallel species with humanity. And the one thing they missed was, after looking at this malevolent picture of Smith in burning gold, like, like it makes it seem almost like that's a, a poisoned yellow image that shouldn't be there. Neo, when he was, when he's with Trinity at the end, we should see Trinity as golden light so that we can connote and understand Smith's becoming human, but at the same time, Smith was always part of something which actually does have a developing soul. It has sentience, it can think for itself, it can ponder its own existence. When he goes to meet the Oracle in film two, two half movies ago, for a few seconds he sees Seraph in the Matrix and his soul is glowing gold. But that's so long ago that the average person wouldn't even remember this minor character in a minor moment for a few seconds sandwiched between fights. Two of the other big moments with yellow in the movie outside mm-hmm. of the, the Neo vision is the sunlight. Because we yeah. get two really prominent moments in this movie of sunlight. One where Neo and Trinity get to be like the only humans that, well, Trinity, I guess, gets to be the only human who has seen the actual sunlight yeah. in an unknown amount of time. And then at the very end, when Sati makes the sunset, yeah. or the sunrise, I guess sunrise, the gorgeous, multicolored, unrealistic sunrise. Which brings color to the Matrix at long last. Yes, and it brings and all soul. of these colors together. Yellow is what we kind of conceptualized the sun as looking like, but it's actually white light for the most part, which is all colors at the end of the day. Mm. Okay, so if, if blue is the body mm-hmm. and green is the mind mm-hmm. and yellow is the spirit mm-hmm. is does that mean that a lot of the color theory is also showing the uh the fact that all of those things are widely separated for the majority of the films until the end because at this sense. point because the matrix the machines, four has got a mix of them throughout yeah for the whole for pretty much the whole thing because yeah. in the, the the humans are essentially only f- caring about bodily elements they mm-hmm. are there about survival they are Eating just tasty like, wheat and just keeping going 
Yeah, they're they're like you know just just the very most basic elements of survival, mm. like the the meat, if you will. Um, while the machines have locked off the creativity and the mind in the Matrix, uh, it's itself this form of control to separate it from everything else. While the machines had essentially taken and, and hoarded the spirit for themselves, because the source itself is represented by golden light which we see a couple of times in reloaded and revolutions and um so so that way it is the fact that like the reason that the dystopia exists is because of these three different elements that should be combined are separated yeah that makes sense it makes sense that the humans have separated the machines have separated themselves from humans for protection from them they knew they remember what happened when they were integrated the humans could not fucking handle it and they don't trust us to not do the same thing again and ultimately the reason that the machines are able to hoard that spirit is perhaps because the humans cut themselves off from it by scorching the sky mm. they cut themselves off from the sun mm. they've cut themselves off from spirit yeah and it is black that is separating most of these colors, isn't it? Because the yeah. green is always surrounded by black. The uh, Zion itself is very dark and gritty. And the, there's a literal black sky separating the earth from the sun. I really like the gold color just uh, aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm personally of the opinion that it was merely chosen as a uh, intense contrast to the color uh, theory that had been set up before necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a washed out blue. It's not a sickly green. It is bright and it is powerful. It's not just yellow. It's golden. It's brilliant. And it's as a, as a storytelling medium, it's entirely to give Neo sight of... Um, Tiresias, the mythological blind seer. Yeah, it, it's his uh, it's his like uh, binary codo vision, but in the real world, and it 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 only seems to work. It it would have been neat if we could have seen Trinity's soul go as well, but we do only see it used to uh, witness uh, machines and where their brains are uh, uh, held, as it were. And I just think it's well, absolutely right up until wonderful. the end. Yeah, I think it's absolutely wonderful that um, the the color chosen to represent the internal soul of the machines is so beautiful. Like uh, the the first hacky thing to do when designing the the color of your enemy's soul is to make it as ugly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. There is, um, you said you wish you could have seen Trinity with the, the gold in the Matrix online they actually did find trinity's like rsi like her soul what was left of it and it was rendered in that brilliant gold oh, i'm gonna cry <laughs> actually so. stand up, i'm gonna cry okay yeah, um, also the gold i i mentioned this in the resurrections pod was used only there for the um the holograms hiding io mm-hmm. which um is obviously a technology they got from the machines which is i think why it is that color because it is the essence of machines protecting them and I think in addition to blocking themselves off from spirit by blocking off the sun, the humans don't have access to that because they are so focused on the war. The machines are, they're, they're dealing with it, but it's not really actually their primary focus. They just need to maintain the matrix and they're used to doing this cyclically and they'll, they'll just keep doing it. They're not dedicating their whole 
existence to it. They're doing their own things all the rest of the time, presumably. We don't see what that is. But this isn't the only thing that the machines care about. It's the only thing that humans care about. They do nothing but think about this war. And war doesn't really give you a lot of room to have spirit outside of it. Yeah. Side note on Theresius, the mythological blind seer. I actually included him as a character in my first book, written all the way back from 2001 to 2003, and never yet released, which was very mythological characters in a sci-fi setting inspired by The Matrix, the original film, and Final Fantasy and Star Wars, and all my influences were worn on my sleeve. I guess they still are. And his name was Vincent Terres, and he was built like a brick shithouse but he was also a, a tremendous coward. And he was blind, but he could see people's souls. So his world was very murky until he was near somebody who was particularly charismatic or brought with them their own energy. And what I described was exactly what Neo was seeing when Smith turned up looking like that in the body of Bane. So I remember sitting in the cinema going, oh shit, now I can't use that. And yet in years to come, I did actually incorporate that into Abigail's Starlit Eye in Secret Rooms and Steamheart and Uncivil Outlaw. Ultimately, a great visual idea is a great visual idea, and putting it in the written word in a book conjures a very vivid image in the mind of the reader or the listener. I, again, if this had been, if they'd had more of a thoughtful first act rather than l lots of the greatest hits, was it Brendan who said greatest hits? Because that's quite <laughs> incisive. Um, that just a conversation between Neo and Trinity about the Matrix doesn't have a son, and Trinity had always wanted to see th uh, the real son, but um, as soon as she got out, she, you know, she she hoped she could get there and then couldn't. So that would. Like, if we set that up at the beginning, it's a bit predictable, maybe, but then the Wachowskis are fairly on the nose and predictable a lot of the time anyway. But it would have just made that moment sore when she can finally see the sun, because she's never particularly expressed a particular need to see beauty in that way. But the idea that we've cut ourselves off from the source of life itself... Like, the reason that there's life on Earth is that we're just the right distance away from the sun and we have just enough water and microbes that could create enough life that can lead to all the rest of the complex organisms. And, yeah. I just realized there's another instance of gold <laughs> uh -huh. that I think is super relevant. When Neo and Trinity have sex while everybody else doing the 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 big rave, mm -hmm. the light in their room is that same gold color mm -hmm. from the candles and things. Yeah. It's their connection that is giving them the spirit back. Mm. Now, actually, that's uh, the predominant color in the rave itself. For the, it's not as bright, but it is definitely gold. Yeah, it's definitely not blue in there, and that's very much they're uh, enacting the uh, functions of the body. Um, 
And the yellow is borgone energy. It's literally energy. called the temple. Yeah, like that's that's the color of the temple. And and the and if you didn't like, if the movie wasn't subtle enough for that, it gives Neo a cross and angel wings of golden light when he's doing his his final move. A smidge on the nose. <laughs> I mean, Zack Snyder saw that and went, "They're being a bit too subtle there. I'm going to do it more." <laughs> Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about what Zack Snyder saw in this movie and what he's done since. Let's not go into them, but I will pick your brains on that at some later date because goddamn. The Red might be surprising of the conclusions that I reached and but no one no other philosopher has said this this was just Sharon and I bouncing ideas off each other red I would have assumed originally especially if you'd asked me in 1999 red is for choice and making a decision to stand up and fight and then I thought oh wait a second every goddamn squiddy has red eyes like red pills red eyes blue bad red good red eyes and I mulled it over. So do you want to have a think about what, 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 where we see Red in all four of these movies? If Red is supposed to be, when you're within the Matrix, the ultimate understanding of how the world is, then out in the real world, Red is the human pods and the squids coming to kill you. And that... If that's a very bleak understanding of the world, sure, yeah. <laughs> I think it's worth noting, though, that red is also the most common color on the clothing of the humans in Zion. Almost all of them have a red sweater. Have you, uh, nice have you noticed of red. It's specifically the captains of hovercrafts that seem to have red sweaters? Mm, yes, captains. it's a very... It's a very common color for that. It's a... So it's kind of like, follow this person, they're wearing red. Yeah. Like it's Star a- Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> but not sure. Star Trek The Original Series, because goddamn. They'll get you killed. Yeah. It kind of feels like Red is some form of control. Mm-hmm. At, at least the, the, the levels and stacking control that is prevalent, because the Sentinels reinforce it uh, very literally on the outside the pods themselves contain the humans that's part of the red the candy that the oracle gives neo is red and she offers it three times the first time he takes it the second time he hesitates to take it and the third time he refuses and by that point in the first movie he's all in on being part of this system of control in the second movie he's uh, rethinking his place in that system of control. And in the third movie, he has decided to move away from it, as has she. I, f- I feel like that scene is itself a kind of, um, like, test of Neo's conviction in, like, a really subtle way. Now, the place where that starts to break down, and I haven't fully figured it out, is the red pill. Yeah. Um, now, I, it could be the idea of, um, I like, you... Wow, because the, the blue the blue pill still doesn't like really like that, that kind of throws it off a little bit mm. in in my mind. But that's like what I'm thinking. Well, yeah, because if you take the blue pill, you're going back to the matrix and just continuing to stay in in there. So surely it should be the green pill. I just yeah, had, the green I had pill. a thought about that just to throw this in because we're talking about the pills. 
the blue pill does nothing. It resets your day. Technically, it's a tranquilizer. It knocks you out and then yeah. they put they you put in. They put you back in your bed. You, you wake up and you choose to believe whatever, whatever you, you want wish to. to you can choose to go, yes, that did all happen. I'm not quite ready for it yet, but I may come back to that at a later date. Mm-hmm. Or you can choose to believe that it was all just a dream and it's and you, you're imagining things and go back to your regular life. Mm-hmm. The blue pill doesn't actually wipe anything out or, or do anything like that. It's just a way of indicating I haven't made that choice yet similarly with the red pill morpheus was offering the truth nothing more but it's only as much of the truth as he knows and the red pill in the it is a tracker but it is also an rsi protector Mm -hmm. it prevents an agent from from entering you during the process of coming out which unfortunately Um, is why the detective didn't get it in time in detective story yeah and and also why it's necessary for programs like morpheus 2 to to take a red pill as well Mm. uh which is itself at least in the first three movies still another form of that same control you're just entering a different part of it because you're still entering war for Zion, you're still entering the blue world, so to speak. It is still part of controlling you. There, there's also something to be said for the use of complementary colors. The fact that like the green is the color coding of the Matrix and its complementary color red is the outward projection of the soldiers protecting that system. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you could you could go like really far afield with like, okay, if you're taking the the blue pill like you're choosing to live in the green world which is a combination of blue and yellow and the connective themes and ideas that we have going with that Mm. um but but so much of like the what the wachowskis seem to be doing with color theory is like whatever seems to to work in the context of the the single movie that they're making because they'll yeah. they'll change things rather drastically. Oh yeah, my interpretation on what red could actually mean. You were actually really close, Victoria, just in terms of proximity to the concept when the Oracle gives Neo that candy on the bench. And then Smith comes out and says, what? What is it that he, when loads oh. of other Smiths start turning up? It's purpose. It's purpose. Now here I stand because of you, Mr. Anderson, because of you. I'm no longer an agent of this system. Because of you, I've changed. I'm unplugged. A new man, so to speak, like you, apparently free. Congratulations. Thank you. But, as you well know, appearances can be deceiving which brings me back to the reason why we're here. We're not here because we're free. We're here because we're not free. There's no escaping reason, no denying purpose, because as we both know, without purpose, we would not exist. It is purpose that created us. Purpose that connects us. Purpose that pulls us, that guides us, that drives us. It is purpose that defines purpose that binds us. We are here because of you, Mr. Anderson. We're here to take from you what you tried to take from us. Okay. Everything red, and I'm sure there'll be something that I'm forgetting, which is totally not, but that might just be the exception that proves the rule. 
You are taking the red pill because you are giving yourself new purpose and rejecting the purpose of the Matrix. As soon as you get out, you see all the red pods. And the red pods are the purpose of humanity, which is to feed the Matrix. There are, of course, negative traits inherent in rejecting every system and taking everything entirely literally. At the farmer's market with my so-called girlfriend, she hands me her cell phone, says it's my dad. Man, this ain't my dad. This is a cell phone. I threw it on the ground. What you think I'm stupid? I'm not a And then the squiddies all turn up, and their purpose is to look for you with their many red eyes. And then you meet a ship's captain who's wearing a red jumper, and his purpose is to find people who are in pods. And everything that's about the Matrix Reloaded is Neo almost fulfilling the purpose of the One, and then deciding not to at the very, very end. He's on that line of purpose until he ends up in a state of purposelessness, which leaves Morpheus like, oh, fucking, I can't even. And he is unable to even for the rest of the season. Mm. There's another two examples that I can think of of mm -hmm. purpose as well. The woman in the red dress whose purpose is to distract you during the training program. Ah. And mm. Persephone and the Merovingian initially Lipstick? are not wearing red when they first meet them, but by revolutions, when they have narrowed down to having only one purpose, mm -hmm. they are both wearing red. That's also because it's a clumsy metaphor for hell, but okay. Yes. <laughs> but red satin, he might as well be wearing a headband with little horns yes. on and carrying a little plastic trident. <laughs> then Elizabeth Hurley comes in and goes, I could have done this better. Um, so... <laughs> So yeah, I mean that's that's it, it, yeah. I'm sure that there are other interpretations for it, but red always seems to twin be, be twinned with someone who really thinks they're doing the right thing. And Morpheus should have shed his sweater when he started to realise the thing I've been doing for all this time has taken me down the wrong path. That's why I made the artwork for the Matrix Reloaded episode red rather than green. It would be so easy to make the middle two just both green because it's they're parts of the same thing. Except that film two is Neo pushing towards a purpose that he ends up rejecting and film three is him finding a new way. And that is I within the mind. Neo discovering, um, it, it's not even necessarily discovering, it's Neo deciding that he's will forge a new path is the most interesting thing they did with him in these first three movies. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it was certainly more fun to watch him in movie one, but um, part of the reason I think people get down on Neo as a character is because in two and three, just as a function of his place in the story, he's not sure what he's supposed to do. Mm. And that's very frustrating for an audience to watch a character. Like he's like uh, in the elevator at the Merovingian's place. He's like, did we do something wrong? It's like, uh, you're the main character. You tell me. <laughs> I'm but not sure. He's this, a sexy hat stand with a question mark above it. But by this movie, um, I know it's partly just so that the, the runtime matches up, but after he wakes, uh, they get him out of the matrix He's like, I have many thoughts to go think. <laughs> and that is so unique 
to let your character actually just in a movie, like in reality, we all do that all the time. We go off and we have a think about stuff, but movies, they do not make time for that unless it's like a montage. Okay. Yeah. So, normally, when someone's having to think, they have to do it while they're holding chalk writing on a window or something, <laughs> and they have to explain everything that's in their head. Some poser hands me cake at a birthday party. What you want me to do with this? Eat it. Happy birthday to the crowd. I threw the rest of the cake too. Welcome to the real world, jackass. Let's have a quick break and hear some more of what the critics thought of the original Matrix, which they liked. I mean, Lawrence Fishman should always be wearing those sunglasses where you can see Neo's face. Somehow it's um, yeah. more potent. And also those scenes in a, in a more real world are, are, are so intriguing at the level of, say, invasion of, of the body snatchers. Oh, yeah. you're, you're just never quite sure which person you're looking at is going to be a real person or a robot or whatever. Yes, it was in that John Carpenter film. Was it, was it a John Carpenter film about, when, you know, like you put on these glasses, you could see like the magazine covers and all the magazine covers said conform, conform. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's the, it was a, like a rowdy, rowdy piper or something. Whoa. Yeah. Neil. It's They Live. And yeah, good call. It functions as a prototype Matrix movie. It was clearly massively influential. Critics are absolutely essential as a key stage in how we handle our stories. They can give us insight that we never would have had before. I learned so much from critics. It's what I want to do. And I really wanted this commentary to be so much better and more insightful. But this is what we got from these guys. Well, Keanu is virtually always perfectly shaven. Yes. Uh, God knows how. Yeah, his hair length varies, but if, yeah, the 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 bald look is very. Uh, what do you think, very Keanu? In. Do you think Keanu's beard grows? I, I'm not sure that it does. <laughs> no. I think it's I think it's fixed forever and perfect. No, I once saw him in an airport, and in, in fact, he did have a little bit of. He uh, did. Yes, he did. And un and unlike most stars, actually was picking up his own luggage and signing autographs for people in a friendly way. I've I don't want to hear anymore. No, I've seen him in the, I've seen him in the supermarket. Yeah, he does that sort of thing. He does. Yeah. I ain't gonna be part of this system. And he actually does amazement and shock yes. time and time again very well. Yes, he does. And he never. I mean, I, I don't mean this nastily. He never seems all that smart. You know, yeah. um, which I think audiences in general don't identify with pe- characters who seem too smart. <laughs> now there's a get out for no, a great yes, deal absolutely. of the film. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this actually is one of the one of the great sequences. In fact, this enti- this stretch where 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 Neo is learning the rules here. You know, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, you get the same thing. You know, in in that remake of Zorro. You know, it's you know where where the person's learning how to become the person. That they're capable of being. I think th- this kind of thing, it, the Karate Kid. Oh yeah, you know, has the it, same works. Thing. it works. It works. This, this, this is like uh, yeah. throughout the history of there time. We go. Oh, now there we, we go. Yeah, now, now we see we're in another realm. Yes, with martial arts. The term you're looking for is a training montage. So many things to throw on the ground, like this and this and that and even this. I'm an adult. Okay, so. This is another thing that I realized while I was watching through, and it definitely comes up in terms of uh, in Relief of the Matrix 4, which we uh, we recorded the show on the Matrix 4 a couple of weeks ago, and you'll hear that next week. But in terms of the feminine quartet, 
Maidens, Crones, and the Dark Woman, because there's actually four in the... Uh, Maidens, Crones, and the Dark Woman are all accounted for in the series. Where are the mothers? There are examples of people referred to as mothers who are, in fact, much more like crones, or mothers who just kind of, like, take their kids away and don't take any further action in this. Trinity actively rejects being a mother without us ever seeing her domestic situation. She illustrates to the analyst that she's pissed off with him for emotionally blackmailing her with children, but at the same time, it all just kind of happened without us having to watch her go through this with kids. There is a concerted absence of maternal energy in this series. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is an unusual thing. There's um, there's Z's uh, sister, though, in the second and third Yeah, that's movies. the mother who takes her kids away and yeah. takes no further part in proceedings. Played by Gina Torres. Because... Yes, because... complete waste of Gina Torres, by the way. <laughs> yeah, she takes her kids out of the movie because this movie's about to be very unsafe. Oh, yeah, there's going to be people getting adults. killed by squiddies all over the place, yeah. Because it's got such feminine energy running throughout the whole thing. It's coursing with it. So... It's this is specifically a queer or trans feminine energy. Mm-hmm. And one of the hallmarks of being trans is the significant difficulty in being a mother. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I have to wonder if there might be some comparison there mm-hmm. since even the experience of, you know, I can only speak to my own experience, of course, but the experience of HRT sterilizes you eventually and the fact that you get to be a maiden and you get to be a crone and you can certainly be the dark lady but you have a much harder time of being a mother and not to mention all of the you know legal uh legislative elements around preventing uh queer women from being uh from even like adopting yeah and a lot of trans women, or at least, again, I can only speak for myself, may have maternal energy, but find it hard to find an outlet. And yeah. to a certain extent, I could say that the mothers present here are the directors, because they're the ones that created this whole franchise, and perhaps that was a direction of maternal energy. I but love that as a reading. Thank you. It's also not just par- it's also not just mothers, it's parents in general, which um mm. yeah, there there's no fathers either. I mean which is, you know, off the you know, the maternal energy uh uh, chart or whatever. There's analogs but, for shitty dads, but none of them are literal. Like Smith's your yeah, shitty there's, dad, there's, and the architect's your shitty granddad. There's there's no parent energy because well, one literally humans are grown here. Parents are not mm. generally a thing. And two, uh, extending the gay metaphor, uh, separation from one's own uh, parental figures is just a very common experience. Like it's not. It's not universal, and it's becoming less and less universal. It's thankfully easing up on the poor Gen Zers in that uh, regard, a little, (laughs) I hope. Uh, It's also just a a function of the system of perpetual systemic war they're caught in. Families can't be like a narrative focus, and the this is one one of the times where I think that focusing on kid is helpful to the the film's thematic heft is that he's an orphan, and so like literally everyone in the Mm -hmm. movie who's in the real world has had to find some kind of surrogate family 
with very, very few exceptions. And even the ones who have biological family have all had like parts of that ripped away from them. Yeah. This uh, is also um, uh, why he probably should have been played like by, by a 12-year-old boy for whom piloting a mech suit would have seemed an almost impossibility. But he believes in Neo, maybe he could do it. And like, you know, a 12-year-old that we actually like, I, I'm not sure the Wachowskis were quite there yet with directing kids because Sati is a little bit me, 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 me as well. But um, like if, if, if you can imagine a couple of really great child performances as both Oracle and Kid that could have been really powerful in that regard. But the other example of a kid is the deus ex machina is like a, like if Orson Welles was a baby and really angry, it's that it's this twisted ass baby face. Um, This might be a bit of a stretch, but mm -hmm. I want to toss it out there anyways, just to hear what y'all think on it is that Nate Niobe maybe by the end of the movie gets to the point because in hmm. resurrection she's moved on to be like the complete leader of the, the crone, human yeah. civilization essentially she's a crone but i think her arc throughout this one is moving from a young woman fighting the world to somebody who has completely come into their own and knows what they want and is taking care of the people around them hmm. And I think that's might be the closest we get as far as central characters are concerned to a mother. She doesn't become a mom in a very typical sense, but I think as far as the like character energy is concerned, just on a purely vibes level, Niobe at the end has achieved that level of maturity. Especially since they pair her specifically with Morpheus that the first film names as a father to the other characters. That seems very deliberate. It is also actually kind of refreshing not to see a film series go, a man and a woman must get together, and that is for the express purposes of having babies. The race must continue. It's, it's still uh, about the, uh, the, the, the carrying forward of, uh, uh, of not just one species, but multiple species. Uh, but it's in a far less literal sense than just having babies. So there are definite upsides to the absence of hyper-focus on mothers, especially as certain franchises tend to focus on mo- uh, women as only a walking womb. And it's like, right, if you're not having kids, what's up? Going, what's going on with that womb? Oh, Outside God. of the main series, the archivist, or not the archivist, the, yeah, the the archival program in uh, the one Animatrix short, the mm. second Renaissance, kind of has a little bit of mom yeah. energy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's a program in an archive, not notably a person interacting with anybody ever. Mm. I just came to a realization about the um, cycles of the Matrix. I really wish I'd re- realized this for the Rev- uh, Reloaded pod. Cause that's no, I love part. people coming to realizations mid-podcast. Those are fantastic. <laughs> great. Go. Okay, so what it is, is the cycles of um, the Matrix, um, I... I fully ascribed to the matrix as a trans and gay allegory in general and what the cycles of the matrix definitely uh seems to represent is the cyclical loss of gay history Mm. it just um it it goes through these cycles where um things will improve and things will uh get better and then the literal fucking nazis show up at your door and burn down your whole library of research on how to uh you know uh change your gender body parts around 
And then we go through the 50s and people pretend the gays don't exist. And then we get around to the 80s and 90s and the gays are like, yeah, yeah, we got this. We got this. And there's no sense of what the true uh, essence of gay experience was in the 1800s or the 1900s. And it's constantly having to recreate your own history. I, while that is bone chilling and just fills me, it, it, it hurts my heart to think about it. I love it as a, a reading. It is very insightful. The er- erasure and I suppose the cycle of gay people were hated in the past. Now trans people are hated. Let's just keep going round and round because someone has to be hated. Well, what, what Alexa was even referring to was the burning of the Hirschfeld Institute by the Nazis, which was back in the 30s, and that was mostly trans people. And then, of course, Reagan uh, ignoring HIV and killing most of the, the gay elders and other queer elders. So, like, yeah, it's been a cycle of burning down uh, the community over and over again. Yeah. And we can even tie that further back to colonial actions, destroying the gender and sexual identities of different Indigenous cultures people. that yeah. didn't align with yeah what the Western culture wanted. And thankfully, some of those are getting uh, renewed now, and it's so nice to see. Do you see why I wish there was a lot less screaming and firing guns in this one, though? (laughs) I I like the fact that uh, Matrix 4 has so many conversations. I thrive on those conversations. I'd have been fine with them not doing any action at all. Just just chat. Just talk it all up. This is fine. I'm I'm engaged. Just stay in the coffee shop. It's diner, but really good, and it's The Matrix. (laughs) Honestly, I'm impressed by the fact that Matrix Resurrections made all three of the preceding movies better to me, Mm. to the point where I actually really enjoyed watching Revolutions, but I'm pretty sure Resurrections is the best one. It's yeah, certainly no, Willow's favourite by I a had long the same shot. Revela- I had the same revelations about revolutions. <laughs> oh, that's great, Niles. A fifth R word. <laughs> Making it harder on myself there for no reason. But yeah, no, coming back to it after The Matrix 4 when the, uh, Lana and Lily have really more nailed down their uh, pure emotion style that they love to do. And uh, Res- uh, Revolutions is uh, starting to lean in that direction. Okay, my next bullet point here simply says, explain why Carrie Ann Moss is the MVP of all four of these movies, and this can coincide with Trinity's second death. Oh, Trinity. Get up, Trinity. I still, I still don't, I still don't buy that she was into motorcycles in these first three movies. Have you ever ridden on a Ducati? I would totally be into motorcycles. It's fun. Motorcycles are really fun. But I mean, not, like I we've already established that the Wachowskis are so not fun. above going, hey, check out our greatest hits. Remember when Trinity was on a motorbike? That was pretty rad, huh? I think Trinity is really, really is the emotional core and by the end of the day, thematic core of this whole franchise to the point where what they do with her in uh, Resurrect, yes, Resurrection <laughs> and <laughs> basic basically confirm that she was always just as as important to this whole endeavor as neo was makes it works perfectly well with what they've presented in the rest of these movies 
Listen to her delivery and her dignity and her commitment, defying the pulpiness of some of this dialogue. I'm ready. Trinity, there's something I have to say. Something you need to understand. I know I'm supposed to go. But beyond that, I don't know. I, I know. You don't think you're coming back? I knew it the moment you said you had to leave. I could see it in your face. Just like you knew the moment you looked at me that I was coming with you. I'm scared, Trent. So am I. Took me 10 minutes to buckle up one boot. But I'll tell you something. Six hours ago, I told the Merovingian I was ready to give anything and everything for you. Do you know what's changed in the last six hours? No. Nothing. That is really cheesy writing. And the Wachowskis have often kind of given Carrie-Anne Moss George Lucas levels of dialogue to say to Neo. But unlike Na a young Natalie Portman trying her best, this Canadian lady... One of ours! <laughs> ...who puts so much of herself into this role. Do you ever watch her in, in the, um, the, back, like the backstage training? I, I, I saw her twice get injured. Um, like, she banged her head at one point, and she twisted her ankle at another point uh, in two completely different fights. And in both times, her immediate response was, Oh, no, 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 no! Like, I, I don't want to disappoint people. I really, really, really want to do this. She became almost a child who's just broken a, a precious vase and doesn't want to upset Grandma at that point. It was quite overwhelming to see the level of emotion just pouring out of her. I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's an onset injury, but she makes fairly trite dialogue kind of magnificent, and that takes a lot. She's also, she, she is so good at her physicality that every time Trinity takes any sort of physical action in these films, it always reads as one of those like big character moments sort of sort of beats and the this is something that i was that i was very amused about um the speaking of the the revolution's commentary like they they absolutely picked up on the oh everything they do in these movies that's triumphant and and victorious they do together right down to dying and being reborn Within minutes together of each other, yeah and oh, oh, one of them theorized, I reckon, that, uh, uh, that, w that they will be reborn within the Matrix and we'll see them again. And I was like, you're ahead of the, <laughs> ahead of the curve on that one. Well done. I will say I got, after having seen Resurrections, I got a four. different level. Four. I got a different level of reading the first three by interpreting Trinity as the actual protagonist, but just does less 
definitely, going on. definitely. Like it, if, you, it, if you see everything that's going on through her eyes rather than Neo's, it gives you a different read on the whole story. Unlike Lucy in the Lego movie, she's content to play support. And she'll take command, pull rank, and supersede Neo and others when it counts. But then when she's put to the front, she will absolutely lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's always there. She's always helping. Um, she literally saves the day in the second movie and at the start of the third movie. But because those aren't like the proper climaxes, she just doesn't really get the credit. Mm. Which, uh, again, adds to why I fucking cried when she flew at the end of four. I just think it's incredible that in this movie that has three absolute stone cold butches and all of them die, Trinity is still the best one. <laughs> I was saying, the lady who uh, loads those rockets, I could take a whole animatrix about what the hell she, she's she been uh, doing in Zion, living in Zion. Yeah. The Chara, second yeah, she no. shows up, my me and my husband are both like, oh, damn. Damn, <laughs> that's, yeah. that is one attractive woman right there. Uh-huh. And, and Maggie, Maggie, the doctor at the beginning, I was, yeah. I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. That is, that is definitely a case of the Wachowskis hiring some people they knew, I think. <laughs> Done with the place. It ends tonight. I know it does. I've seen it. That's why the rest of me is just going to enjoy the show. Because we already know that I'm the one that beats you. Everything that has a beginning has an end. The final battle between Neo and Smith delivered Dragon Ball Z style combat to the big screen for maybe the first time since the wretched Superman IV The Quest for Peace in 1988, and in doing so illustrated that thanks to advancements in both technology and creators who were raised on completely different media to those men in the 1980s, the age of the cinematic superhero could truly begin. As with the mech battle, Neo fighting Smith is actually the wrong thing to do. It may be impressive, but it's a distraction and a protracted one at that. One that we've seen twice, dazzlingly. The culmination when Smith demands to know why, why do you do it, Mr. Anderson? Why Neo fights comes down to his choice to keep getting back up and persisting, which is admirable. But it is still the wrong path, only resulting in more conflict. It is only in his calm, self-sacrificial surrender that he balances the equation and harmonizes with the troubled and corrupting former agent of the system who was so directionless and angry that he would kill everyone just to rationalize his own existence. 
Neo is a warrior for peace. This was his way of breaking the chain once again. However, in technical terms, this means that for two movies now, The Matrix 2 and 3, every time he has fought with agents, with Smith, with werewolves, he is in fact distracted and misleading himself. Remember when we were talking about the mythology and like he's fighting those uh, those guys and and like he's wasting time fighting them when he doesn't need to. Still buying into the mythology of him being the one. I still maintain that there's a little bit of arrogance in there. It's not ridiculous pomposity, but when he speaks to the train man, he has no humility there. He he just demands to go and threatens the train man and fighting Smith even though he's doing it to protect everyone else, comes from a place of, I'm the, as you said last week, I'm the one, I know how to fight, that's what I do really, really well. But again, it's a distraction. Even every slightly too relaxed fracas so far, after the first Matrix, has been a dance juxtaposed against the nail-biting, frantic yet jaw-droppingly coordinated hard scrabble for survival in Matrix 99. To this end, the action on the Matrix sequels appears to work against its own interpretable meaning. On the other hand, if Neo had spent two movies refusing to fight and then finally unleashes his full abilities, it would have been impressive as hell. A major release for audiences. And also completely backward on the expanding philosophy being delivered to us by the Wachowskis here. Revising their original instilled determination to fight a suffocating system when we should in fact change it from within. I recall being astonished that humans would trust machines with this pact at the end to not simply slaughter them at the next possible convenience as soon as the machines worked out how to arrange a preferable form of existence. It felt like the Wachowskis, and this was important, remember? Rage Against the Machine off the radio. It felt like the Wachowskis had been assimilated by the system and the new and much more marketable way of thinking was to accept a very one-sided form of tyrannical rulership. But seeing what they have made in the years since, it is very clear that they got to tell the story they wanted to right here, for better or worse. Neo is the one, Smith is the zero, he's the naught. They are locked into battle between true and false. Neo here recognizes just in time the commonality between machines and humans, everything he's gone through with recognizing the spirit, the golden energy. It's in all of them. He cannot undo the abuse of centuries. He cannot bring back the dead. But he can bargain his way into a fight. When he tried to bring back the dead with Trinity, it was fleeting. It happened for, it, she, she got a few extra hours and crucially she got to be able to take him where he needed to go. They got there and she saw the sun as a result. But he can't keep people alive once they have died. He can bargain his way with the deus ex machina into a fight to protect life and minds and spirit from self-destructive hate that Smith now represents. And when he stops mirroring his enemy and he opens up to Smith, he answers the agent's perpetual no with a yes which ripples throughout every being within the system, literally all of whom Smith obligingly connected for Neo to disseminate his code, bringing along with it the gifts of free will, deeper thinking, and most of all, the core concept of all of these films that seems to be missed by so many people, or worse, seen and rejected, love.
This new message of shaking hands with our enemies justifiably annoyed the hell out of a lot of people back in 2003, and it has fluctuated in sharp relevance in the long years since. It often feels like we can't find an accord with people who feel that they want to eradicate us. It feels naive, something the fourth movie to a degree acknowledges whilst still retaining the key sentiment and determination. Why? Why? Why do you do it? Why? Why get up? Why keep fighting? You believe you're fighting for something, for more than your survival? Can you tell me what it is? Do you even know? Is it freedom or truth? Perhaps peace? Could it be for love? Illusions, Mr. Anderson, vagaries of perception. Temporary constructs of a feeble human intellect trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose. And all of them as artificial as the Matrix itself. Although only a human mind could invent something as insipid as love. You must be able to see it, Mr. Anderson. You must know it by now. You can't win. It's pointless to keep fighting. Why, Mr. Anderson? Why? Why do you persist? Because I choose to. There was a machine civil war which suggests they were not all happy with this new arrangement. And the humans also seem to have argued as well. It's... It's messy and complicated, and just the Wachowskis conceding that is a nice way of illustrating that things move onwards, they get more complex, that's a good thing. But this is effectively what the final battle is, and a lot of people also point out that as well as the big shooting, like, mech suit war, the fight between Neo and Smith goes on for quite a while, and I feel like this is because we've already seen them fight for a long time dazzlingly, already once, and the fight here is actually not the point, it's the stopping fighting. So I have, I have two small comments and then a much larger uh, thing to, to parse out. So the first comment is I really appreciated seeing Hugo Weaving be more campy than in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, Are we going to mention the laugh? Come on, someone mention I, the laugh. The, I mean, everything. Because at this point, he's entirely in control of the Matrix program. <laughs> the lightning is there because of him. The rain is there because of him. The entire... He is just a dramatic little queen. <laughs> and it's lovely because of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Now, uh, I, I think the fight itself, eh, spectacle, wonderful. The one thing We've that I We've seen a lot can... more like it since, which makes it less special is the other thing. Sure. Uh, but one thing that I think you can pull out thematically is the fact that Smith doesn't do anything that he hasn't seen Neo do. Yeah. And it fundamentally uh, speaks to Smith's lack of imagination. And that, I believe, is relevant for my larger point. Okay. Uh, in, in Reloaded and Revolutions, Smith is very specifically representative of the kind of fascist, quote-unquote, red pill fail sons that uh, the Wachowskis were annoyed with for having misread the first movie so, so dramatically. And this is showing the ultimate end 
So, so throughout this, uh, the, the Oracle even talks to Neo about this, how Smith is the opposite side of the same coin. Neo is compassion and love. Smith is fascism. Just, that's it. And at the end, Smith has essentially won. He has uh, turned the Matrix into what can only be described as a monostate uh, in, in the most literal sense. And he is fighting to destroy the last thing that is standing out and, and fighting against him. And to, to a certain extent, I feel like looking at the ending where Neo essentially like gives up is complicated for a couple of reasons that I'll go into. But before we get to that point, especially going back to your description of Red being purpose, mm -hmm. Smith begins his speech by saying the purpose of life is to it's end. And, and he says, like, do you believe you're fighting for something? He's searching for what is your purpose, Neo? Are you fighting for truth? Or are you fighting for freedom? Are you fighting for love? Only a human would come up with an idea so insipid as love, which we know is false. We know all of these things are not true. Smith is consistently ideologically incorrect at yeah. every point in these in reloaded in revolutions what smith which, doesn't know about existence could just about fit into the grand fucking canyon which the matrix doesn't have yet yeah and and smith is smith has decided that his purpose might makes right that everything should be him that he should be in charge of everything which is very strong like fascist vibes uh, and, and at the end, we get to see the ultimate conclusion of that, that once Smith has essentially won, that in the end, you cannot consume the vast multitude and complexities of humanity and hope that they will not fight back against you. We see the Oracle essentially fight back against him in the moment where he's like, oh, and I was standing here and I said something. What did I say? And then the Oracle speaks through him and he's like, wait, what did I just say? Something's wrong here. And because it is uh, the, the individual elements fighting back as Neo then does after he has been consumed because the ultimate end state of fascist ideology is annihilation. Fascism is a death cult and we get to see the destruction therein by compassion. Uh, it... It, it does get a little money because uh, uh, the real life, there is an awful lot of violence that necessary in, in preventing fascism as well. But mm. uh, it's a movie, an idealized form of that, yeah. where the it's Wachowskis... Symbolic, which makes it very difficult when we're applying it to real world politics, for example. Right. And so, for example, the Democrats going, they go low, we'll go high, and then we'll win in the end. And it's like, you're going to have to do more than just be high on the, like to have the high ground on this one if, if you if you wanted to parse it out across like a, a, a political spectrum the humans and the machines are relatively like center conservative almost they're almost yep. like american like republican democrat kind of thing because the the machines want to conserve the status quo they want to maintain control over the system the humans are speaking uh they have a lot of like fervor a lot of uh yelling you know they're doing all of this stuff to like break people out but they are still part of that system they're still fundamentally still locked into the matrix if you extend it to the full 
realm of control that is going on. Uh, they, they, they kind of have like, um, what's it called? Uh, hyper, uh, it doesn't matter, but it, it, they're essentially like just to the right of center while the machines are a little bit more to the right. But then you have <laughs> rising from what is essentially the, the, the right conservative political ideology, like representatives, the machines is agent Smith, who yeah, is this crazy, right, right, like ideology. super ultra neo right wing, you know, violent maniac who makes yeah. the regular machine code seem relatively centrist by relief. Yeah, he's Michael. Much. He's Michael Shannon in the Shape of Water. He bought the he bought the tail. He mm. bought the tail of the system, and wasn't happy about it getting taken away. Or he's Ali Alexander. Or he's a, one of a dozen other people that I can think of in real life that have essentially bought into this and have taken it further because fascist ideology comes from right right leaning ideology. Mm. But Neo and Trinity. And even to another extent, people like the kid and Z and Morpheus, they're not really there for the same fight that the rest of the humans are there for. They're fighting for each other. They're fighting for love. They're fighting for compassion. And one of the elements of true like anarchist leftist ideology is that for a lot of us, it's not that like I have read a bunch of books. It's just that I think people should be allowed to live and have a good time and and should have food and health care. And that is somehow a radical position. Yeah, you in, sound like a crazed socialist there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and <laughs> Next you'll be saying people have a right to exist. Oh, my gosh. Uh, what? And, well, but that does bring it all the way back around to Smith's talk with Neo, because he says that there must be purpose, there must be control, and that existence without meaning and purpose, like, what does that even mean? And Neo's like, no, like, I exist, I choose to fight this because someone has to stand up to you, essentially. And in the end, that's the ideology that wins and, in a sense, sways the the more centrist ideologies into creating some kind of a truce leading to the world that we get to see in Resurrections. Smith isn't exactly nihilism, but he's absolutely someone who, when confronted with the idea that there's no plan, there's no fate, there's no God, whatever, uh, gets really freaked out by that and doesn't like it at all. Where nihilism Neo and Nazism are a hair apart because you can't, like, you can't really you throw your lot in with the tenets of nationalism without using as an excuse to just do terrible things which you can't possibly believe you're going to receive karmic retribution for because otherwise the worse you behave the worse you're going to get so you have to believe in nothing Lebowski nothing they they both but come from a very rigid form of thinking and that I think is what happens with Smith he is freed he thanks Neo for freeing him but he doesn't have the flexibility of mind to then work out well what am I going to do with my new family? because he's so fucking unimaginative exactly and, and Neo and all Neo and all his um, close friends represent people who were presented with the knowledge that everything is meaningless uh, the world is what you make of it and they're like oh that feels really good man like I was I was I had so much anxiety but like you just made it all go away thank you <laughs> so we define ourselves and we can choose how to yeah. so, so life is basically Christmas mm. well now ain't this a surprise you played a very dangerous game change always is 
Just how long do you think this peace is going to last? As long as it can. <laughs> what about the others? What others? The ones that want out. Obviously, they will be freed. I have your word. What do you think I am? Human? Everything's okay now. Look, look! Just look at that. Beautiful. Did you do that? For now. That's nice. I know he'd love it. Will we ever see him again? I suspect so. Someday. Did you always know? Oh, no. No, I didn't. But I believed. I believed. Trinity says that they are going to paint the sky with rainbows. The end of this, Sati has literally painted, painted the, the sky, sky with rainbows. rainbows. I like these movies a lot. Yeah. <laughs> They're very I've good gathered that over a number of weeks. <laughs> On the School of Movies Patreon bonus podcast feed next week, you will find 45 additional minutes of if you for some reason need more Matrix chat after you finish listening to our show on Resurrections. Everything that didn't make all of these episodes all in one place, some of which are fascinating tangents. And that's a Patreon exclusive. And a huge thank you to our top tier $15 sponsors who get a shout out every week. Aaron Lecluse. Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. That will about do it for Revolutions. We will leave behind the Matrix of the 2000s and begin again in the 2020s next week. Before we go, could our honorable guests let the listeners know where they can find a piece of work 
that you are particularly proud of start with McKenzie. You can find me as always on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. Uh, there you'll be able to locate uh, my podcasts that I'm working on, video game, the movie, the podcast, and Dice Weave and the Rainbow Connection. And if you also look up that same tag at Kenzie Phoenix on Instagram, you can see my art, which is going to probably have more robots in it than usual soon because I'm drawing a lot of robots lately. Victoria? You can find me on Twitter at VixenWitch, where the W is two Vs. Uh, yeah, as far as things that I've done next week is Resurrections. I think that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Last week, I mean, I don't know, this whole month seems pretty good. I'm, I only really do stuff on this podcast because otherwise I teach my class on society crumbling and why fascism is bad is going quite well. Thank you. Brendan. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at BLC Agnew or find a, uh, I did it, my, my yearly kick-ass movies of 2021 countdown, which uh, may or may not feature the Matrix Resurrections on normanner.blogspot.com, but the uh, the big thing that I'm I'm proud of recently is uh, if you haven't had enough anime bullshit in your life, I did a deep dive into the films of Mamoru Hosada, director of Summer Wars and uh, the very recent Bell. You can find that on synapse.co. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co. And finally, Alexa. I refuse to believe anyone who got to this pod doesn't know you can find my stuff at Pluto Burns most places. So instead, I'm going to recommend you track down a movie called The Watermelon Woman. Mm-hmm. It's from the 90s. It's about a lesbian lesbian filmmaker trying to make a film about an early black lesbian in Hollywood. Um, It's very much connected to the themes of trying to reconnect with gay history that's just lost from you. And for a 90s film, it felt weirdly like watching Twitter happen. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Oh, and uh, if you love the Wachowskis, folks, uh, stay tuned, uh, because in a few weeks' time, we're recording it next week, uh, we will be talking about their first movie, Bound, Uh, which we found out while watching a making of the original Matrix yesterday. They made Bound because the studio were like, you've never made a movie. What the fuck with this whole Matrix thing? And they went, fine, if we make a movie, will you consider it? And they made Bound just to show that they could make a movie. It's way better than just a a tech demo of their abilities uh, should suggest. Lesbian noir, need I say more? We will see you in a different time, in a different place. I've been Daisy Wheel. I've been headset. And school's out. Uh, people come up. Yeah. We're gonna turn the bass up on this one. Check it. Since 1516, mines attacked and overseen. Now call them extra. Back.